little bit later. And as he's coming up, I want to thank all of you for your uh, patience <laughs> and uh, for your uh, um, grace with us as we're navigating these uh, uh, difficult technical technological things. Um, and uh, it's so it's such a blessing to be able to share with you. Also, want to thank you for your tithes and offerings and sowing into our community. Um, and uh, for, uh, for blessing uh, us to be able to be a blessing in the Richmond community. If you'd like to give online, which I strongly encourage over um, uh, putting it in the box, because that's a little bit harder these days, you can give online at tikvatisrael.com and click on Donate. Um, I want to, uh, I have a few announcements. I want to make sure that um, you all are receiving our text messages or emails um, if you want to, um, so you can uh, stay updated with uh, all the decisions that we're making and everything that's happening. Um, just go on our website, tikvatisrael.com, and you should be able to um, click on contact, or you can add your, your email to our um to our list, um, or you can email uh, director at gmail.com, um, which is our admin, Maggie, it's, that's her email, um, and uh, she'll get it and she'll we'll be able to keep you connected um, so you know about that. Um, our Passover uh, Seder is, uh, is very soon, if not now, um, or soon, is going to have a sign-up. So we're going to do a virtual Seder, um, and it uh, should be fun, and you can go on there and you'll be able to get the, the Zoom link and everything you need um, to prepare for your Seder at home, all the items that you'll need to follow along, and uh, it'll be uh, fun, and hopefully it'll have a Hamish, you know, a homey type feel. Um, we can all be together uh, in some way electronically at this time, so... Uh, be, be on the lookout for that. And the Torah study every other week is still um, uh, uh, on Zoom. And uh, it's uh, this week, uh, this Wednesday. Um, feel free to tune in. And uh, if, if you need the, the link for that, please contact the office. So with that, I'd like to invite Mr. Wayne, or Master Wayne as I like to call him. And uh, he's going to give us a Devar Torah and bless us. So, um, can I pray for you first? Please. All right. <laughs> Avinu, we pray that your word would go forth and encourage your community. We thank you for Wayne, our Shamish, and everything uh, that he does in our community. And we pray that it would be a blessing to your people. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, David. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Those of us that are here and those of us that are in Wi-Fi land. A happy birthday to you, Wayne. Love always, Mom and Dad. 1983. In the year 1983, I turned 12 years old, and I received a treasured gift from my parents. This was the first Bible of Scripture that I had ever received. 
and I immediately set out to read the Torah. I started at Genesis, and it was a blast. I could follow the stories because most of them I had already heard before. There was Adam and Eve, there was Noah, there was Cain and Abel, then I got to Abraham, and it read pretty much just like a cool novel. Then, of course, came Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and Egypt and Potiphar, and I was just kind of transformed into this world of stories that I had heard, but this somehow just made them much more alive to me. And then I hit Exodus, and Moses, who's actually a Hebrew, but he's raised in his, as an Egyptian prince, and Pharaoh, and let my people go, and the, and the events of Passover, and the Exodus, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and the drama, and manna from heaven, and water from a rock. And then toward the end of Exodus, after the Ten Commandments, got a little bit more murky, but I could still read it. And then I got to Leviticus. And oddly enough, this book wasted absolutely no time in introducing right from the start the sacrificial system of the tabernacle and later, of course, the Jerusalem temple. There are mentions of bunches of offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, grain offerings, thanksgiving offerings, vow offerings, free will offerings, something called a wave offering, whatever that was, ordination offerings. And this is just in the first five chapters. But I slept through until around chapter eight. This is about where Aaron and the priesthood, this is about them being ordained as priests and people are getting blood sprinkled on their right ears and on their right thumbs and their big toes. And I was like, okay, I'm out. Lists and lists and lists of laws that at the time certainly didn't make any sense to me and certainly did not resonate to me at the immature age of 12. So I switched gears and I went straight to the Brit HaKadoshah. I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order over and over and over again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then I went back to Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I got a little bit older, into my mid-teens, and I said to myself, okay, I've, I've got to at least give this a good, honest try to read the entire Torah. So I hit Leviticus again. And the more that I muddled through, the more that glimpses and recollections of events within the four Gospels suddenly became much clearer much more global and made a world of more sense. This week, our tour Parsha cycle begins with the book of Leviticus, a book that most of us, if we're honest, have given up on. Leviticus is usually dismissed, especially by those that believe that the new covenant has somehow erased the original. But today, I'd like to encourage you all to Wait for it. Stay with me. Because the purpose of my sermon is to give a very concise overview that I hope will ignite within you who, like me, had at one point given up on Leviticus. A spark to try it again, but this time with eyes more open and aware. Now, 
Let me say clearly up front, the purpose of this sermon is not to persuade you to accept animal sacrifice, nor to observe kosher laws if you're not already doing so. I'm certainly not going to try to dissuade you if you are not. My purpose is, however, to show you the sacredness and the spirit behind these seemingly random laws. I'd like to start by introducing the idea that the theme of Leviticus is that the true God of Israel and the world is holy, and that this holy God seeks to dwell among his children. And Leviticus shines light on how a holy God can be present in an unholy world. I think Mary did a beautiful job of summing that up in her trash. This book defines clear boundaries between cleanliness and uncleanliness, holiness and unholiness, and the issue is not about a blind obedience or non-obedience to dry, constricting, antiquated superstitions, but about growing in sincerity before a holy God, and therefore, by extension, to family and to neighbor. Those of you that attend Tikvot regularly, I know you are all just fed up as you can be with hearing me talk about ritual purity from this Bema, and, and yes, I am going to touch on that, but I'm going to use that to spring us toward a discussion of the sacrificial and kosher systems that I have not spoken about before. I personally believe that the topic of ritual purity is very relevant and important to discuss because when we hear about ritual purity, we have been conditioned by a world that really doesn't understand Torah that these ritual purity laws are somehow marks of God's contempt for us in a way and tendency toward wrath, but they're not. In fact, most of the laws of cleanliness have nothing whatsoever to do with sin. My go-to examples that you've all heard before are contact with blood makes you ritually unclean, but not necessarily a sinner. Contact with corpses for burial. These make one ritually unclean, but not a sinner. Contact with lepers, those who have various skin conditions that the Torah talks about, makes me ritually unclean, but not a sinner. Healthy marital relations within the sanctity of marriage, childbirth, makes one ritually unclean for a time, but certainly no sinner. And I've, I, as I've mentioned from the Bema before, and I'll mention it again, conditions of ritual impurity where no blatant sin has occurred, it's very easily taken care of and usually just requires a ritual washing of your body, your clothes, and confinement at home for a prescribed amount of time. Ritual impurity where no blatant sin has occurred does not incur the Lord's wrath, and it does not denote a divide within the relationship between you and God. I can think of no better example that this predicament that we and the world find ourselves in at the time of this sermon, the COVID-19 pandemic. 
the lifelong fascination with science and the human body that I've had since I was a kid has left me to a very unique and rewarding career. I spend most of my waking hours inside hospitals caring for a unique population of patients. And sometimes I'm at as many as four different hospitals in one day, from anywhere from eight to 10 to entire 24 hour periods. And trust me, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do as far as isolation goes, and washing my hands until I have blisters on the back of them. I don't, I don't know if you can see this. Moreover, I gotta develop a little bit. I'm a very blessed man because whenever I come home, whether that's three o'clock in the morning or that's three o'clock in the afternoon, my wife, Natalia, always stops whatever she's doing and comes to the door to welcome me home. I'm very, very blessed. Now, with the pandemic, we have made a new house rule that once I get inside, I am to immediately take off my shoes, remove my scrubs, walk them to the washing machine, and then wash my hands, and then it's greeting time. Now, this new household ritual, so to speak, does not at all mean that a rift has occurred within our marriage. Natalia, Natalia saying, Wayne, remove your work clothes and take a shower, does not equate to, Wayne, I don't love you. It does not equate to, Wayne, I don't want you. Natalia, I promise you, is not standing at the door with her finger in the air, waving it around and saying to me, oh, Wayne, you, 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 you horrible knave, you, you, you impudent cur, how, how dare you enter into my presence with unwashed vile scrubs? Why, it clearly means that your soul is wicked and that you are born with a tainted ugliness within you that is the source of a rift between you and I, that you must cleanse yourself from the stain of it and loathsome wretchedness that you are. I promise you, she's not saying that. And you know what, beloved? Neither is God. It doesn't mean that at all. And in fact, me coming home in that state really means that I've been honoring our marriage. I've been honoring the gift of my family and career by working hard and doing my job right. I moreover want to assert that in this context, a person touching a loved one who has passed away and preparing it for burial is honoring God. Yes, it makes them ritually impure, but it does not mean that they're doing anything against God. Until I get out of the shower, since I've just spent umpteen hours in an infectious environment, I'm not protecting me from Natalia. I'm protecting Natalia from me. And in the world of the Exodus with medical care dismal at best, and such a high infant and mother mortality rate during childbirth, during a woman's normal biological cycles and after childbirth, it's not God being degrading towards women by making
making them isolate. It's about protecting women during the times where they are most biologically vulnerable from the germs outside among the rest of the camp, among the children of Israel as a whole. It's to protect the woman. The medical term for this is recall is called reverse isolation. And by staying in your homes, you're all doing that without even knowing it. So the ritual purity laws in our personal lives, pardon me, the ritual purity laws in our personal lives then leak out to our social lives, to our neighbors. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. This is in Leviticus. And from Yeshua himself, this is the second commandment just as important as the Shema. Then there are the sacrificial and kosher laws. We can eat any grain or fruit that we feel like as long as it's been properly tithed. The first fruits are to be given to the Lord in gratitude for his bounty and providence. The Lord has blessed us to eat any animal that is not a scavenger. What is a scavenger? In very general terms, a scavenger eats whatever it can find, including the rotting flesh of other dead animals. It's not pleasant to talk about or think about, but it is what it is. So, we can eat practically any bird except for crows, ravens, seagulls. These are scavengers. Birds of prey, eagles, vultures, hawks, ospreys. They are scavengers. They eat roadkill. Fish, as long as it has fins and scales, we can eat it. Why? Because the fish that have skins, such as eels, catfish, stingrays, are bottom feeders. They are scavengers that feed on decomposing material littering the ocean or lake floor. Creatures that have shells, crabs, lobsters, where do they live? They live on the bottom of the ocean, eating decomposing matter. As far as land animal animals go, again, no scavengers. Reptiles, dogs, cats, wolves, rats, pigs, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. They all carnivores who live off the flesh of another. So kosher animals are vegetarians. They're mammals with cloven hooves and fur. They chew their own cud, which was probably seen by the Hebrews as being self-sustaining, which is the polar opposite of being a scavenger. That gives us cows, beef, sheep, goats, and moreover, in order to be truly kosher and considered ritually clean for consumption, that animal must be killed in the most humane way possible. It is not to suffer. Now, again, this is not, it's not nice to talk about or think about, but the animal is killed with one continuous slice across the fruit that takes less than a second, and the animal, one could say, does not know what's coming, so to speak. Now, after said animal is killed, they must be strung up by their hind legs so that the blood can drain out of the body and into the earth and not contaminate the meat. 
this is where it gets interesting. The blood must not be consumed, nor even handled. And it's not because it is necessarily considered dirty. It's because it is so holy. I'm going to read from Leviticus 17, verse 10 and 11. Leviticus 17, verse 10 and 11, which states, As for anyone, whether of the house of Israel or alien residing amongst them who consumes blood, I will set myself against that individual, and I will cut that person off from the people, since the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement on the altar for yourselves, because it is the blood as life that makes the atonement. And the Hebrew word used to translate into English the word life in this passage is not chai, as in lechaim. It's the word nefesh, which is also used to describe a person's soul, animated and enlivened with the ruach of Hashem, as in Genesis 2.7. Genesis 2.7 states, And the Lord God formed man from the dusts of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the ruach, of life, and the man became a nephesh, a living soul. So after God fashioned Adam of the out of the dust of the ground, he breathed the divine breath of life into his nostrils, and Adam became an animated, living soul by the ruach of Hashem. So the very life force, which is the essence of Hashem, the Eternal One, is in the blood. So blood on one hand can defile, but on the other hand, blood purifies and atones because of its inherent sacredness. Now, back to the meat itself. The meat also had to be tithed, and this, beloved, is where the Levitical laws really come alive. When you brought an unblemished animal for sacrifice to the tabernacle and or the temple after the animal was kosherly prepared, as we just discussed, a part of that animal had to be offered to God. And that part of that animal that was given were the fatty parts. The fatty parts were seen to be the most valuable and choice parts of the animal. Those fatty parts were burned on the altar as a quote-unquote sweet smell unto the Lord. And to us, hey, this seems very, very primitive and antiquated to us today, but this is making a huge theological statement about the nature of Hashem. This is one of the many things that made the God of Israel so completely different from all the other pagan idols that pagans sacrificed to. Every single 
other pagan sacrificial system existed to feed that other god, to keep that other god or goddess's belly full and satiated so that that pagan god or goddess wouldn't get cranky one day and kill everyone one by one just for fun. But in the sacrificial system to the one true God of Israel, the fat melted away and was described simply as a sweet smell unto the Lord. The one true God of Israel and the world transcends needing human food. So in Judaism, the sacrificial system did not exist to feed or satiate a fickle, threatening, and moody deity because the Almighty Eternal One is above all of that secular pettiness. To the ancient world, this was a game changer. This was a complete paradigm shift. If you had a pagan neighbor, you're, he would have said to you, so your God doesn't need food, huh? Well, good luck with that. At the tabernacle and later at the temple, the sacrifices occurred twice a day in the morning and at sundown. And whenever you were there bringing your sacrifice to the Lord, he got the choice fatty parts. Another part of that animal had, you had to share with the priests. But the rest of it, the Torah requires that you and your family stay there on tabernacle or temple grounds and share the rest of that freshly grilled meat with one another. You are not to take it home and eat it. And it, this is wonderful because this means that the Lord of the universe is sharing a meal with you. So contrary to popular belief, the sacrificial system was not meant to satiate God. It was meant to create perpetual sacred space and perpetual sacred time for the God of the universe to perpetually commune with his children. And here's the, here's the best part. Here's the, Y'all haven't heard anything yet. Here's the best part. These same Levitical laws allow Jews in the diaspora, um, by diaspora I mean Jews that had, for instance, stayed in Babylon after the exile, who had not uh, returned. There was a huge Jewish community there, uh, a huge Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, there's a very, very large community in the city of Antioch. These Jews that could not practically participate every morning and every evening in the sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple, they could instead, twice a day, in the morning and at sundown, the time of the sacrifices, turn and face whichever direction Jerusalem was in and offer prayers. And we have a lot of evidence that they would definitely recite the Shema. They would definitely recite the Amidah. But then something more beautiful happens. 
because by obeying the Levitical kosher food preparation and tithing laws, wherever you are, the altar of sacrifice at the Jerusalem temple now becomes your kitchen table. What is sacred space and time in Jerusalem now becomes sacred space and time within your own dining room. Oh, beloved, the Levitical laws were not sent to constrict us and make our lives a series of chores. Leviticus, brothers and sisters, can be seen as a manual for creating sacred space and time to commune with our Lord wherever we happen to be. The Lord wants to commune with you. I, can think, I, I can't at all think how more relevant than in these days of social distancing where everybody is isolated within their homes, what opportunity there is to connect with our own families, with our own loved ones, to say the Shema and the Amidah in the morning and in the evening, to say Shabbat at sundown on Friday nights and Havdalah on Saturday at sundown and create sacred space and time within your own residence and among your own family members and commune with the Almighty. Passover. Pesach is quickly approaching, and through the lens of Leviticus, a Passover is not some trite, empty, empty ritual. Sitting at a Passover Seder becomes, it becomes sacred time and space that pitches you there. You are one of the Hebrews suffering under the bitterness of brutal servitude. You are one of the Hebrews gathering on unleavened matzah because it didn't have time to rise before you flee into an unknown and foreboding desert. You are one of the Hebrews who is saved and delivered from the strongest empire on the earth at that time, not by a standing army, not by a fleet of chariots, not by swords, spears, guns, tanks, bombs, cannons, grenades, but by the divine life force, the nephesh, the essence of God himself within the blood of an innocent, slaughtered lamb. And when Yeshua at the Last Supper with his Talunim, he took the bread and wine. He gave thanks over the two most simplest and staple foods within that culture. He didn't say, and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny nor cute here, he did not say with this filet mignon and pheasant under glass and blackened tuna, no. He used the most simplest, staple foods in the Israelite diet because it's for everyone. He took bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken and given to you. This is the blood of the very nefesh, the very essence and ruach of the creator and sustainer of the universe as atonement for the remission of sins for all time. And we are reminded every single time that we sit together and share at the Lord's table. The Messiah Yeshua took what was most mundane and sanctified it with life for everyone. 
as our Hebrew ancestors were delivered from bodily death. We are delivered from sin by the blood of another innocent, slaughtered lamb, Yeshua our Messiah, and we are participating within that renewal of our very own souls. I would like to close this sermon with a thought. Usually, the books of the Torah are named for their most first important words, but as Congregational Leader David and Clarine and Mary Haller pointed out, the Hebrew title for Leviticus is not any word pertaining to Levites nor priests. The book we know as Leviticus is called in Hebrew, Vayikra, which means he, God, called unto Moses, Vayikra. And with this in mind, we can all from now see Leviticus not as a book of random do's and don'ts, but as a calling, an invitation to participate in a life of perpetual communion with Hashem and Yeshua, allowing the presence of the Spirit of life into all of the sacred space and time within our renewed lives. Shabbat Shalom. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. That was such a blessing. Uh, well, we're going to close out our service with the ironic blessing. Uh, uh, feel free to rise as you're able um, for that. And uh, uh, maybe I'll even say the Kiddush for your uh, Oneg at home. We'll try that. <laughs>
going through our technical difficulties with us. And uh, we will see you next week uh, uh, here uh, at the same uh, station <laughs> at the same time. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Shabbat and a wonderful Onik in your home. Shabbat Shalom. Oh, boy.